0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to UCL's Institute of the Americas event, Sexing the Blue Tide. I'm Maxine Molyneux, your chair today, and I'm delighted to be introducing our speakers. But before I do that, let me quickly run through a couple of housekeeping points. Uh, First of all, to save bandwidth, we'd ask you to ensure that you're muted and that your cameras are turned off. Uh, Secondly, we will be taking contributions from the audience at the end and you can ask a question by writing it into the chat column. You can open this by clicking on the purple button at the the bottom of the page on the right. Uh, You can write in your question there and because of the number of attendees, we may have to select questions or bundle them up so not all questions may be answered for which uh, many apologies in advance. So let me now introduce our speakers. Um, Constanza Tarbush is a sociologist. She gained her doctorate from the University of London in 2011 and I was fortunate to be her supervisor. She's published widely on feminism, human rights and gender inequality and was a recent contributing author to Elizabeth Friedman's wonderful edited book Seeking Rights from the Left that was published by Duke in 2018. Constanza holds a research post at the University of Buenos Aires, but is currently working for UN Women in New York. Jonathan Bell, I'm sure many of you know, is Professor of US History and Director of the Institute. He's published widely on US politics and his most recent book is an edited collection titled Beyond the Politics of the Closet, Gay Rights and the American State Since the 1970s, and that's published with University of Pennsylvania Press. So without further ado, as we say, I'd like to hand over to Constanza and um, off we go. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Maxime. It's such a pleasure and a delight to be here with all of you today. Good afternoon, good evening to everyone. First of all, I would like to thank the team, the wonderful team at UCL Institute of the Americas, Maxine, my mentor, John, Oscar. Um, Initially in those pre-pandemic times uh, when we thought about this event, it was meant to be a face-to-face lecture. You know, back then when we all thought that uh, our biggest worry were conservative actors, right? Uh, But in this, Post pandemic world, the team was really wonderful and transformed this into a shorter online event. So let me share my presentation with you. Hopefully, this will work. Perfect. So my remarks today are based on two projects. One is the book that Maxime told you about, um, um, about the pink tides. And I'm also going to use a more recent project. We are coordinating with Gisela Sarenberg from Flaxo Mexico, that we are preparing a special issue on conservative actors in Latin America. So really my presentation will be structuring three key blocks one is a more empirical block it's just to take you through some of the actors and key characteristics of anti-gender movements in Latin America the second block is a more conceptual one it's about how do we how can we understand the relationship between those anti-gender movements feminist movements and the state and if backlash is really the best concept to describe that the characteristics of current opposition to gender equality. And just finally to, to conclude with some highlighting some fa- uh, factors, um, mainly what could be the protective factors or buffers to conservative advances and some really future challenges for feminist and LGBT politics. So I will start by showing you some images. Perfect. So with this image I wanted to start by saying that while um, historically gender and sexual politics were at the fringes of mainstream Latin American politics, today the regulation of gender and sexuality are actually central to mainstream politics and political competition. So on the one hand in recent years we see this really strong um, coalitions uh, between LGBTIQ, feminist and pro-democracy advocates that are actually taking the streets, uh, that is a very long-standing tradition in Latin America, uh, in massive protests seeking more just and equitable societies. These two images actually represent that bondage and and that collaboration between movements, the image of this is the two images are from Argentina. The first one is, um, actually shows the 10 year anniversary of the, the passing of the marriage equality law that was yesterday. So this is really the state official recognition of that important landmark um, legal change. And the second one is really an example about um, one of the most important feminist organizations in the region, the National Campaign for the Legalization of Abortion that really have used this kind of symbol of the green handkerchief to symbolize their struggles and that was an icon that has been taken up for through feminism across the region and actually both LGBT and feminist um, activists use that as a symbol of their uh, collaboration and cross-fertilization. That is why I want to talk about these two movements together uh, because collaboration is central to understand sexual politics as we will see the agenda of um, anti-gender actors actually focuses on both so when we see this strong oh wait wait perfect so the recent rise of center-right and right-wing governments in the region really provided a fertile ground for the dissemination of vibrant increasingly coordinated and effective anti-gender activism. One of its main examples is Don't Mess Up With My Kids, it's a Peruvian organization originated in Lima based on alliances between different evangelical sectors that really started organizing around issues of sexual diversity and, and gender equality content in the educational curricula and really what kind of stands out of this movement vis-a-vis previous anti-gender mobilizations is their use of street protests in combination with courts and Congress to to disseminate their anti-gender agenda, as well as their spread throughout different countries in the region. So while it was initiated in Peru, now we see this organization really spreading to other countries such as Argentina, Bolivia, Ecuador, uh, Mexico and Uruguay. Right, So, the next prominent example of anti-gender activism comes from Mexico and it's called the organization, it's like the National Front for the Family. The National Front was launched in 2016, as well as the organization in Peru. And this one was really in direct response to the five-point gender equality proposal announced by President Peña Nieto, which included a legalization of sex, same-sex marriage, which through um, abundant um, and organized and street protests ultimately defeated that proposal. Um, and what we can see in this case as well is that this organization it is based infrastructure in earlier anti-abortion activism and has organizational support from some of the kind of classical anti-gender advocates in the region, which is the Catholic Church. So in other contexts, what we see is that the agenda of anti-gender movements goes beyond sexual politics and the notion of gender ideology is strategically mobilized to oppose other progressive government agendas and here we have two clear examples, maybe the best-renowned case is that of Colombia, where really the anti, the gender ideology framework was used to rally opposition to the signing of the peace agreements. So you see here in that flyer how they oppose the the agreement quoting because they support love, they support the family, um, so that kind of rhetoric. Um, And we see the same also in Paraguay where um, the gender ideology agenda was also mobilized against um, a bill for political parity or so parity between men and women in the legislature and here we see these ideas about cultural colonialism with the European Union invading Paraguay and the idea that that we they needed to defend um, the national their national heroes um, so, in a way, these examples, I hopefully kind of for those of you that don't know Latin America, they give you um, a view, a, a flavor of, of what these actors are about. But so what are the key features and characteristics of these movements, and I think we can highlight at least five of them very quickly. So first of all, foremost, this is a new cycle of pro- protests. gender, to gender equality is not new, it can be tracked to the UN Conference of the 90s, yet in the literature marks 2016 as a new cycle. Um, The main characteristic of this new cycle is the taking up of streets and mass mobilizations and the use, strategic use of previous framings for those mobilizations, in this case that of gender ideology as a meta-framing, right? Um, Gender ideology serves to promote a patriarchal and heteronormative social order based on what these actors consider a natural and complementary gender roles and identities. But it also allows different groups, conservative groups that didn't collaborate to come together and actually form loose alliances around a a wide variety of themes and actors that didn't necessarily collaborate prior to that. We do know that these actors mainly act as opponents, so in a way can be defined as counter movements, that is networks and organizations aiming to counter the real or perceived successes of feminist and LGBTIQ movements. But once they have political clout, they actually can also propose, they can put forward bills and other ideas and proposals of their own. And we have some clear examples emerging from Central America where counter movements don't not only resist demands, but also demands for the um, decriminalization of abortion, but are actually organized around preventing changes and actually deepening those restrictions to abortion. In terms of thematic focus, we see that really doctrinal policies and sexual politics is really the core Area of interest, um, but that yet again, in some cases, they were able to strategically mobilize this moral panic around um, gender ideology to actually curtail other egalitarian or progressive policies, as we saw with the examples of gender parity in Paraguay and the peace agreements in Colombia. And then, actually, a final focus that is not really studied in the literature is reforms and um, and policies that aim to actually secure um, economic resources and influence for these groups and really is about consolidating their their power and, and we should be very aware of those because we generally tend to focus on the gender agenda but don't really realize as my colleague um, Gisela Sarenberg says that the first thing sometimes uh, when we have these conservative groups in Parliament is the first proposals are about tax reform, right? They're not about gender, they're about tax reforms, uh, so that they can include tax exemptions for a wider range of formal and informal religious organizations and in that way secure resources for years to come. And finally, really the interest of in this new cycle is the influence um, in institutional politics and they They achieve that through three main uh, channels, electoral competition through alliances with with political parties is one of them, through um, appointments in social ministries, not only gender machineries, but also education and health, as we see, for instance, in the cases of Peru and Colombia, actually anti-gender movements rally uh, support for the dismissal of ministers of education. So that's um, a key. Area of interest, and finally through service delivery. And this is quite specific to Latin America, and it's not not something that the European literature talks about. uh, But conservative organizations have been uh, quite successful in building a territorial base um, to rally support by providing and filling in gaps in in service provision, especially in those contexts where we have very exclusionary welfare um states so these are mainly the empirical kind of description of these actors so is this then if we move on, move on to the relationship with the state um, and the relationship of feminists and the state um would is really backlash way best way to describe this opposition so um, the first feminist that talked um, about backlash is a U.S. feminist uh, called Faludi, and she defines it as a counter, an intense countercultural assault on women's rights. Um, she defines it, I quote, as an attempt to retract the handful of small and hard-won victories that the feminist movement did manage to win for women. Right. So in, in Latin America, if we assume that backlash is this kind of linear story of progress and pushback in, in the context of Latin America, that will be translated in a progress, right, a linear progress, story of progress under the pink tide and a story of pushback under the blue tide or center right governments. Right. Even the actually the main ideologue of anti-gender movements, who is Agustin Laje, who wrote this book that you can see um, on your left, it's called The Black Book on the New Left, agrees with that statement. And he asserts portrays feminists and LGBT activists under demands as a new cultural phase of mar- Marxism or an agenda linked to communism, right? Yet we know from, not only from historical evidence that shows that the left was not really, I mean, it, not really so open to gay rights or feminists, and Maxine is kind of one of the people, one of the persons who really um, spoke about that, but also the pink tide and comparative analysis that we did really shows that backlash stood as a reaction to progressive changes, Um, while it sheds, sheds light on some of the processes, it only partially explains the current scenario, right? Um, so, on the one hand, what we have is that really the pink type did provide a window of opportunity uh, for the advancement of, of feminist and LGBT demands, and on the other hand, obviously, centre-right or right administrations opened political opportunities to anti-gender groups. But there is no unified narrative of progress and setbacks, as actually national experiences have a great deal of heterogeneity. Right? So really, party ideology is not only the explanatory factor of progress and regression. So within the pink tide, we have experiences. We have Uruguay on the one hand, the only country that legalized abortion on demand nationwide. And we have Nicaragua that enforced a complete ban in its pink tide administration on access to abortion under all circumstances. We also see that during the pink tide, though in some contexts, the There was a growing influence of conservative actors in institutional politics that was already visible Uh, and where different um, conservative actors occupied positions in the state or enter institutional politics and for instance um, in Nicaragua and Ecuador presidents like Correa and Ortega allied with religious leaders and openly distanced themselves from feminists and their demands, generating scenarios of tension and confrontation. So really, there are other kind of key variables at play. And I would say um, that cross-movement alliances uh, and robust democratic institutions also play an important role in determining the outcomes of feminist and LGBT demands. In a way, kind of following what uh, Rodenham and Crissom have said, what we C is a triadic relationship, right? We don't see um, a linear process of progress and and setbacks, but we see a a triadic relation between state, feminist and anti-gender movements and their dynamics. See that with some examples. So what do we see in terms of their impact on policies? so and between the difference in between advances and regressions between both types of administrations so we really there's no real normative regression which is the kind of core definitional backlash um in Latin America it's quite rare we only observe that um in abortion and in Nicaragua right uh, we also, as we said, we don't really see a linear story in terms of advancements and regressions on abortion under pink tide administrations. They have very different behaviors. Um, what we can see is that really the, the pink tide was successful in gaining legislative wins. So the only ones who managed to have like across-the-board discussions. Um, Included different political actors, but also social actors on abortion, and actually were successful in passing those demands, uh, were Uruguay at the national level and Mexico at the local level. And here, again, movements and executive support for normative changes were really fundamental. And actually, the strength of movements that could play, that require really to push an agenda through different organizations, abortion is um, a long term game. And um, so that was the two key factors and what, what we do see in the blue tide administrations, in contrast, is that liberalisation was only achieved through courts, so here we have two different mechanisms available in these two different types of governments um, and Supreme Court played a key role. Uh, in with withstanding pushbacks under the Pink Tide, but also in advancing under Blue Tide administration. Here, the example of Colombia Supreme Court that liberalized uh, liberalized access to abortion under certain circumstances in 2006, but also confirmed the validity of same-sex marriage in 2016 was key. Um, so another key aspect of gender politics is the relative strength and, and mandate of gender equality institutions, which are, you know, kind of like the representation of feminist um, interests in the state, right? So under the backless premise, what we would expect is a, an erosion of gender institutions under the blue tide. And what we see with the reviews of, of available is that there is some re-familiarization of their mandates, meaning the merging of women's um, and family issues, for instance, but that empirical research also shows important differences in in the performance under center-right and far-right administrations, showing that the type of party, of left that we're talking about really matters. Really, the work of Rodriguez Gustav, for example, that shows that, for for instance, in Argentina, the center-right alliance of Cambiemos improved um, the status of the gender machinery and created the National Women's Institute, while also appointing a long-standing feminist as its head. Whereas in contrast, in Brazil, what we see is that a complete erosion and, and transformation of the gender machinery to work against women's rights, right? Um, the new Ministry of Women, the Family and Human Rights had an evangelical anti-abortion activist, as it said, uh, Damales Alves and its mandate was completely eroded. So here we see that um, parties type of right matters but also the attributes of democratic attributes of political systems may explain some of the differences between different conservative administrations but it can also explain some of the similarities between liberal democracies and the right and left-wing forces Um, here like the examples of Nicaragua for instance and Bolsonaro and both the restrictions they apply to civic spaces and the persecution of feminist and LGBT activists come to mind. So in terms of LGBT rights, and let's, well, I'll touch upon that these three issues, relationship recognition, comprehensive sexuality, education and gender identity. Really Latin America has been at the forefront of LGBTIQ rights in the Global South. We need explicit removal of formal commitments or policies is not really frequent. What we see uh, backlash here really is about policy implementation, and this is an important area of anti-gender activism, uh, activism and is um, the hollowing out of existing policies. Again, if we look at the pink tide, they do not have a common performance regarding LGBT rights. Uh, but they are the only ones that actually approve equal marriage laws at the national level, right? So we do see that difference between parliaments and courts here again, uh, but also a very differentiated behavior because they they use, they use change civil unions, they also use civil decisions, and here also movements were a key driver of these, uh, the approval of these norms. Um, courts were a privileged avenue in both. Center right and, um, and pink tide administrations. When it comes to comprehensive sexuality education, really, this is about the, the real target um, of anti gender activism. Started with actually comprehensive sexuality education and a worry about children. Um, and it was really about implementation, about focusing on the removal of ministerial authorities and attempts to block the dissemination of educational materials in schools or forbid it. And the actually some of the actors that could withstand this, um, this erosion and um, some of them, for instance, the research done in Argentina and Uruguay shows that actually the ministerial technical teams working on sexual education are a key site of resistance to anti gender advancements, as well as a state, a strong um, state commitment and leadership uh, that will back them up. In terms of gender identity recognition, again, we see really the legal recognition in eight countries. Uh, that span the political spectrum. So, whilst uh, the, the pink tide administrations really recognize gender identity early on, like Uruguay and Argentina, then we have others following that really can Colombia, Mexico, Bolivia, Ecuador, Peru, Chile. So, it's quite a broad spectrum. Um, Maybe what can explain that variability is that in some contexts, um, really, that discussion was seen as a very technical and an expert issue that didn't actually entail a broader social conversation involving all sectors of society. What we do see today is a really interesting and clear difference between uh, right and left wing administrations under COVID whereby some conservative administrations actually tried to impose binary gender policies for social distances. Um, so, for instance, in, in Peru uh, and in, in Panama, they initially tried to implement this idea um, uh, to have an alternative days, days for accessing social services for men and for women. Uh, and this kind of binary definition was highly detrimental to tran- the transgender community and um, whereas what we see in contrast in other center-left uh, administrations like uh, Alberto Fernandez in Argentina is that their actual their COVID response explicitly included LGBTIQ populations and vulnerabilities and their social response by for instance providing in-kind food distribution to vulnerable trans populations or also ensuring that gender-based violence measures protected both women and lgbtiq and um, co- groups so oh wait yeah perfect so in closing in addition to movement politics really what this shows is that institutions really matter um, I seem to be getting all uh, for saying that but but that is really important this is not really only an issue-based problem but it's an, a democratic consolidation one. It is the contestation between this, an egalitarian and a hierarchical social project. And we, su- we see this difference in channels um, and how really that specifies the windows of opportunity that left and right administrations open to feminist and anti-gender movements, right? Um, th- we see that there are certain protective factors, really the cross-movement alliances and strong movements cannot be underestimated. The value and role of independent supreme courts is really important in the region and actually is not really something that is raised in the anti-gender literature in Europe, for instance. And in Latin America, courts are crucial uh, f- for withstanding um, anti-gender advancements. And as my friend Gisela Sarenberg uh, many times said, said, we will probably see an advancement of anti-gender movements for reforms, judicial reforms, and we should be very worried about that. And finally, some of the unexplored angles: how these organizations actually, their resource mobilization is not really clear and there's not much research done on that, as well as um, really, we are lacking on comparative um, analysis of the erosion of policy implementation. We have more knowledge about policy creation, um, but not really systematic understanding of the role in policy implementation. Um, so that's it for now. And thank you all for staying, and hopefully, we'll have a rich discussion. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much uh, Constanza that was brilliant and um, you know lots of food for thought and discussion. Let me now hand over to Jonathan uh, who is going to uh, discuss uh, the content and make some points of his own. Thank you Jonathan over to you.
2: Thank you very much Maxi and thank you very much Constanza for a really um, rich and wide-ranging talk it's not straightforward um, not just in these unusual conditions but in general to summarize so much political change activity variation across the whole of Latin America um, and cover so many different issues and I think what really spoke to me about it was the way in which you were able to bring out the clear patterns that exist in a kind of broad rightward shift in many parts of the Southern Cone and Central America in, in in recent years and the patterns of attacks on what they what right-wingers would call gender politics but is really on bodily autonomy of women uh including um gender non-conforming women and lgbt populations more broadly so some of the patterns we can see there around the kind of alliances that right-wing organizations politicians um ngos church and so on make and often the common themes across the region particularly tied to broader political goals whether that be derailing of peace agreements or tax exemptions for uh, churches and other organisations in Brazil. Also, you were really, really—you uh, brought out really well a considerable diversity in the, both the salience of gender ideology as a political tool, but also how much backlash there might be, depending on the political culture, the institutional strength of a particular policy. I'm thinking in particular of the divergent approaches to gender rights by the governments of Argentina and Brazil. That you brought out. So there's a huge amount there to think about and talk about. Um, I'm going to just say a few words about one particular aspect um, of of your talk. Um, I'm at a risk, because obviously as a US historian, I'm not an expert on Latin America, um, but I think my own interest in the United States can speak to some of the issues you raise around particularly, and I'm risking doing doing to impersonate some of the actors in your talk and impose my own meta-narrative on um, gender rights in border international comparison. This idea of resource mobilisation and the idea of actual physical economic resources forces being mobilised is one of the ways we can see how limited gender and sexuality movements have been in terms of accessing proper full citizenship not subject to these sorts of ebbs and flows of political rights and representations that you have talked about in Latin America but could broadly be described in the other parts of the world as well. So I think this takes us beyond the pink and blue paradigm and beyond the backlash thesis to think about why there has been such a lack of proper integration of feminist and queer politics into a left alternative to heteropatriarchy and into a broader politics of equality of citizenry across polities and across political systems that makes this a global Issue. What I would argue from certainly looking at the United States, but it clearly applies in a lot of, of the implications of your own talk, Connie, is that whether we talk about pink tides, American liberals, left more generally, has attempted to integrate certain markers of bodily autonomy into the mainstream over time. What in the United States is often termed a right to privacy in in US legal discourse. But that right to privacy, that right to bodily autonomy, often enforced in Latin American states as well as in the United States through courts, rather than through a genuine political shift in in the the sort of rights-bearing nature of of the claimants in, in gender politics. That right to privacy has not embedded bodily autonomy in a broader politics of rights to access bodily autonomy, rights to actually have the resources you need to have um, to have the, the real autonomy rather than just autonomy that's there as a legal fiction, this requires harder coalitional building political work than is often like in a lot of places and it cannot simply rely on legal frameworks established in judicial processes most countries I would argue from the US to many parts of Europe to countries in Latin America have basically brought, kept normative family frameworks with a breadwinner, a traditional family structure often with attendant material economic benefit tied to it and have fitfully shoehorned women gender non-conforming people, queer people into them, gay marriage for example, certain amount of recognition of gender identity politics, um, a, a little bit in some places much greater access to abortion although that's still enormously contested across most of Latin America but it's it's left. It's it's coupled that gradual shoehorning of them into those traditional structures with continued attacks or failure to defend economic inequality through um, equality welfare systems and through integrating people without financial resources into the full citizenship. Welfare is often demonized, stigmatized, and yet without proper health access, without proper financial resources, many people cannot achieve the kind of bodily autonomy that many stakeholders in the LGBTQ or feminist movements claim that they want. So it's not just a backlash, it is that any progress is limited within a certain class-based capitalist framework. So to move to my point then very quickly, it's been easy for the right to mobilize an attack on gender and ideology when politics is divorced from wider equality issues. So here in countries like Brazil, and this has long been true in the United States, private organizations fill gaps in state provision, as in the Brazilian case that Connie mentioned, that conservative and religious organizations, evangelical organizations, step into a gap, build a constituency, build support for it around service provision. So do women's organisations, LGBTQ organisations, also develop this privatising mechanism for providing services. And all of these organisations are effectively atomized and almost rivals for resources, seeing themselves competing social dynamics. So LGBT groups in the United States have long adopted, I would argue, a respectability agenda that mimics conservative tropes, often excluding poor minority um, populations, often not just pinkwashing themselves but also creating racially excluded networks societal divisions then are hardwired into political systems and into social structures. They're not the product of linear advances and retreats. So in this situation, people's class identification or their economic rights position is confused by being hidden under cultural concerns under which those economic rights are handed out and parceled up. intra-class struggles because of the privatisation of rights. So making that difficulty of, of fully integrating sexual minorities and women into the political process is because of broader processes of inequality that create automatic political divisions that can be harnessed. So that's just a few comments from me, trying to t- tie some of this together. Um, and I uh, look forward to to seeing what some of the audience have come up with. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much, John. That was a fantastic um, set of points and and reflections. And uh, I think I should give Connie the opportunity, if she wants to take it, to comment on uh, any of those points, or uh, we could go straight into discussions and pick them up later. Yes, okay, you'd rather do that. Fine. Well, let us go to the audience. Uh, and uh, I have a couple of questions already coming in. Uh, one of them, the very first, is from Kath. Uh, is this resistance opposition, um, you know, as countercultural, somewhat dismissive of the possibility that actually represents majority views? And a related question, if I may, because it sort of follows on from Sean Creeley, uh, building on Kath's question, how do we contest the tendency of anti-gender movements to lay claim to being the majority view and therefore the native natural order of things in the face of external colonizing ideas about gender? So Connie, uh, and indeed John, if you wanted to say anything, uh, please both of you feel to uh, answer or, or respond to those questions. Connie, do you
1: want to lead off? Yes, thank you. Um, thank you, John, for those amazing comments. And um, really kind of stirred my imagination uh, on how to kind of pursue some of these ideas further. And thank you to all for the questions you'll be, you've been writing in the chat. Um, on the issue of majority view versus pluralistic views and countercultural or counter movements, um, on the one hand, I think, um, and if I said something different, um, I apologize, I really meant that this were counter, They could be defined in certain instances as counter movements, not as counter cultural um and I think the issue around majority view versus minority view that is like quite a deep debate in in these movements and should really be understood um when we look at the kind of more broader political projects um that are in contestation right um so the idea of a majority view that should be imposed whereas um an idea of a more pluralistic um, polity. I think that is what's really in contestation when we look at that. And really in Latin America, um, if you see uh, some of the um, kind of attitude surveys, um, really they that, I mean, at least now, anti-gender movements are really not per se and empirically the majority view, right? Uh, so for instance, in Argentina and other countries, um there's really no in no religious practice and really religion has really little bearing uh, in many of, of of the issues that feminism and lgbtiq uh, movements care about actually surveys do show for instance, the majority of people are in favor of abortion and uh, liberalization of abortion so really like the um, i mean um it's a challenge i think um of feminists and LGBT movements, how to kind of position this not as a minority versus majority, but really an issue around democracy and pluralism, I think. And um, I don't know, do you want to talk about that, John?
2: No, I don't think so. I think you covered it.
1: Mm. Um, okay, other-
0: so we have... Oh.
1: No, 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 go, go, go.
0: Sorry. No, there's a there's a question here from uh, our friend Amy Lind, hello Amy, Uh, which is um, if anti-gender movements are not merely part of a backlash, what else uh, attributes to their strength in this area? How, for example, do transnational uh, networks and forms of funding contribute to these movements? Okay.
1: Um, Thank you, Amy. Hi, Amy. (laughs) Um, This, I mean, I didn't, I mean the talk was so extensive that there there were a few things that really um, I could not cover, so I'm really grateful for this question because the global dimension of these movements, the transnational dimension of these movements is is quite central to this new cycle of protests and certainly the shift in global politics um, at the global level also provided a window opportunity to kind of feed and nurture those international connections. And um, we actually see, I mean, and that will be a different talk altogether, but I think it's it's a very relevant one. It's also that these transnational networks um, that build on national and regional organizations show really a a very vested and key interest in eroding human rights institutions and spaces in UN circles and they actually there's a really interesting kind of tension because they do take some of the feminist critiques of human rights for instance to heart but they really pivot them in a very anti-rights um not rhetoric because they use the rhetoric of human rights, but with anti with the intention of, you know, limiting rights rather than expanding them. And in the region, really, for instance, for LGBT issues and um, conservative actors at the OEA, the oh, what was the translation in English? The Organization of American States is like a key site of anti LGBT activism. Uh, And, for instance, in in terms of feminism, what we also have seen is quite an interest in some of the regional mechanisms through which of consultation with feminist organizations. So, for instance, the mechanism of monitoring of Belendo Pará, that is the Regional Convention on Violence Against Women, has been kind of completely um, flooded by anti um, anti-feminist organizations uh, that want to actually curtail Belinda Barat rather than, you know, expand its enforcement. So it's really an, a very important dimension and it should be taken seriously because as we know in the region, those kind of broader um, human rights architectures have been really a hook um, in which if, uh, national activists have been able to really kind of legitimize their demands and push them forward and um just one final reaction because i remember what um john said about the judi- i mean the issues around judicialization of demands and that is like we have like a bit of and there's a discussion within the social movement literature that says like that judicialization might deal to co-option you know or like um debasing of some of these social demands and while that is certainly true to some extent. Uh, In many of the empirical case studies that I've seen, some of those are actually quite embedded in in grassroots uh, politics and organizations. Um, And some of the, I mean, very interesting by Alba Rival that analyzes the judicial activism around abortion through, uh, that's a comparative study, Uh, in the region actually argues that. And so it's like an interesting um, conversation and comparison. So I'll stop there.
0: Great, there's a question from Imogen, Imogen King. Uh, Have there been any observed links direct or indirect between this anti-gender organizing, particularly uh, on issues of gender and sexuality, family, private spaces and so on, and the incidence uh, or acceptance of gender-based violence in the region.
1: Um, thank you, Jim. Um, oh my God, this is what working at home looks like. Um, so I think I haven't seen the attitude survey, so I can't really talk about acceptance in terms of social norms. I do think that the actually the violence against women, the gender-based violence and legal agenda was really not, um, it was really across the board uh, in terms of the legal changes. So you see that conservative and progressive governments really push that agenda forward in Latin America. Uh, and we don't see really up to now, I think that, that that be- becomes an area of interest for anti-gender movements and I'm saying this conscious that in other regions it is certainly so. So in for instance in Eastern Europe um, the you know the erosion of violence against women domestic violence legislation and implementation is really a focus a very explicit focus of anti-gender activism we've seen that with changes in legislation in Russia. We've seen that with the problems of ratification of the Istanbul Convention. So while we see that shift in other regions, um, I haven't seen that in the Latin American region, mainly partly because we have that path dependency, right? That really um, gender-based violence was an issue that everyone was in agreement. You know, it was like a lower minimum, um, yeah. You're muted, Maxine.
0: We are hoping to have some more questions from our participants, from our audience. So while we're waiting, um, Constanza and John, um, how do you, how do you think political parties uh, have helped those in opposition to the demands that you know these issues we're talking about, protection of human rights? Uh, in the present context, I mean, do you see some hope uh, in social movements or more in in political parties for the future in both the u s and in Latin America? John do you want to you want me start? to go first
2: um, well obviously the the you know political parties in the United States are enormous complex organizations and for every uh alexander um, you know quasio cortez there's many others who were just you know very much not in favor of major advances on a number of fronts and so the political system isn't very well set up for radical transformation i think it does make a difference i mean this is one of the the central planks running through the the talk and through a lot of our thinking about these is, and it's true in Europe as well, um, is the issue of education. If you have a more progressive curriculum, if you're starting to educate people from, you know, from the start through school programs, LGBTQ history, for instance, is taught in California schools, but it isn't taught in most of the United States. The curriculum is the site of political engagement. It's become a political football to an extent here in the UK um, with the Birmingham schools controversy and so on. Education is a huge Touchstone for the gender critical but also the, the anti you know the sort of g- anti-gender gender ideology uh political grouping because they know that controlling education is part of the the centerpiece of a war over controlling minds in adulthood and controlling the narrative. Some of the questions in the chat were about what makes something a majority view, and it is controlling narratives, it is having a a strong media presence and a strong control over educational um, policy and that that i think is almost more important than than the political parties which are you know just themselves enormous coalitions of often very diverse not particularly well joined up issues money in the political process will tend to dominate over social justice issues um and and then you'll get this dilution so i think social movements are clearly really important but you have to be in government to just do simple things like change the narrative the dominant narrative in our educational systems and things like that so it's a huge a huge issue that i, I think at the moment political parties are not very well equipped to tackle
0: thanks john and Connie do you want to add, add some thoughts there?
1: Yeah uh, thank you and um, uh, yes John gave me a, like an idea when he talked about this it really remind me of Althusser and the reproduction of ideology with the control of media and narrative and presence and um, which is certainly very problematic and true and we see that with the concentration of media conglomerates um, be known by some of these critical actors in in some contexts. But I think one critical question, uh, uh, in a way empirical question, is actually to look at things the other way around and to see what happened, what happened in contexts that really had this, you know, advancements of anti-gender groups, but these were not relatively so successful in actually influencing political parties or state institutions. how can and what were the factors uh, that prevented that in a way? We see that across the board uh, in the region, there are, you know, kind of moving forward their agendas and, and their actions. So, for instance, why is it that in Argentina? And that is um, some research that my colleague and friend Mariana Caminotti, but also Ana Laura Rodriguez-Gusta are looking into is why haven't um, these anti-gender and anti-rights voices gained that hegemony in actually building a narrative, a more like a mainstream narrative, whereby when they interview these conservative actors, they actually felt um, excluded from mainstream media, the media take their calls, they didn't have spaces to talk, um, their opinions were not, Uh, valued or they were contested, so they didn't really have that hegemonic um, legitimacy and the ability to impose a narrative. So what's, what's, I mean, what are the factors that determine that and that's what really would lead us to think about what are the preventive um, factors that will kind of make these movements in a way pass through but not anchor. uh, by means of you know gaining political clout and economic um, interests so that's my response.
0: Thank you Connie. Um, I, some people may not be putting up questions because they don't know how to so I'm going to repeat um, uh, the, the instructions uh, that I gave out right at the beginning. Uh, to the, at the bottom of your screen you'll see a purple um, button on the right Uh, if you press that it opens up a chat column and in that chat column you can uh, put your questions and I will see them and I can uh, read them out to everybody so I hope that helps. Um, We have got a couple more actually, Uh, one is Katha's come back with a question, do we know anything about the age profile of anti-gender activism? And there's another question which I'll come back to, but uh, that might be a quite a quick answer um, actually on the age. Anyone? Connie, do you know? Ah, we don't have you. We can't hear.
1: Hi. yeah, can you, I couldn't hear. I, I lost connection for a little bit. What was the question, Sorry. Oh.
0: Just a, 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 do we know anything about the age profile? Of oh, oh, yeah, I read
1: yeah? it in the chat. I think the demographics is a really um, good question. Um what I can say, and I don't think, um, OK, you will have demographic information of, of Mm-hmm. of religious views but um I don't think there's a study about um, those that actually are active in this movements. what we do know um, and I think that's a very good I mean I actually wanted to find out a bit about the demographics this morning um is that they um, they span across age groups so it's not only um all the elderly that participate in this movements, there is a quite big presence of schools and children specifically, as you know, kind of John talked about the importance of education. And we also know that there is a lot of of women and that actually that activism, at least in Latin America, spans through social class, right? So you have very grassroots um, conservative um, activism. So it's not really, as we saw before, an activism very much linked to the Kind of religious establishments and religious elites that will negotiate with the executive right the fact that they go massive it means that they become much more heterogeneous demographically as well.
0: Thanks there's a question um, from Carly Rogers uh, to both of you Uh, uh, can you please discuss the intersections of gender and race in the contemporary landscape especially in the light of the pandemic and the rise of anti-racist protest stemmed from the United States but spreading throughout the globe, especially in Latin America. John, would you want to comment on that?
2: Yes, I mean, it's obviously an enormous, it's an enormous issue globally, not just now, but it's obviously become this huge political issue in the current moment under, touched off by police violence issues but it's obviously much more structural and much more embedded in certainly in the United States I kind of without spelling out the whole Black Lives Matters context it was kind of underpinning some of what I was saying in my remarks um, that there are much more structural issues of inequality that kind of right to privacy legal rights over identity can't really capture let alone challenge unless they're embedded in a a much more well thought out and structural coalitional politics that seeks to change some of these broader inequalities that are often driven by race healthcare which is my particular research interest is a huge uh, a huge part of that and one of the reasons why the pandemic has had such devastating impact in communities of color where their literal access to healthcare and healthcare resources is often incredibly limited if not non existent
0: yeah Connie do you have a comment on that
1: Oh, can I comment on another question that I saw in the chat? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. Um, because, I mean, um, I didn't want to come across that, but it's true that in a presentation, sometimes it does. And there was a comment about um, having uh, only seen religion as a negative force. And um, I just wanted to respond to that because I don't think that's the case at all. And it's true that we haven't discussed that, but in some of the scholarly literature or religious Movements and groups uh, really shows that and and shows the variations among these different um, uh, churches and creeds and religions. And whilst, uh, for instance, um, we have, for instance, some progressive um, Protestant and very traditional allies of actually LGBT and feminist demands, uh, who stood by activists uh, whilst having this broad and public debates Um, so that is a a point that I I really wanted to make Um, and I mean there is some very important literature that kind of shows that variability so certainly it's not a negative force uh, overall it's very diverse and um, that's it over to you Maxine. Thank
0: you Um, there's a question from Anne Varney, uh lgbtq movements in south america are often divided by anxieties uh question fostered perhaps by academic critiques around homo uh, homo normativity privatism etc expressed for example as complaints that activists are too middle class too white too urban or fragmentation resulting from such positioning to what extent do you think this matters in the context of backlash So, Connie, do you want to have a go at that?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I think there's, um, for instance, uh, there's a really good paper by Corredo that really shows how counter um, movements and, and anti gender movements actually use divisions and tensions between feminist movements to position their demands. And I think that idea could be also applied to what you're um, bringing about LGBTQ movements and their internal tensions and fractures that certainly can be leveraged for to advance some of these anti kind of rights um, agendas. Um, yeah.
0: OK. <clears throat> So um, there's a question from David Lehman to Jonathan. Jonathan, can you see it? Uh, it's, um, it's about... I can um, see it.
2: I, I'm, <laughs> yes, I'm reading it. I'm not sure that is what I was arguing. I think I don't think I must have expressed myself very well. I, I think there is a critis- criticism of a lot of LGBTQ politics in the United States that it can sometimes in its often in its need to fundraise and its privatised nature, appeal to particular donors, provide particular services, provide its route to normativity and it sort of speaks to some of what Anne was uh, asking in her question, um, speaks to particular groups and, and less so to others and that that we really need to have a broader coalitional politics around economic access resources which applies to all sexualities and genders and is around bodily autonomy being an economic need not just a, a rights need that you can access without having the resources to do so. This is a highly racialized process and it is also about a broader stigmatization in the United States and I'd say in In many other countries around the stigmatization of poverty and the lack of of integration of 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 broader equality agendas into rights politics, so I certainly don't think the LGbtq causes are at odds with or distracting from a broad agenda politics at all. I think they're all of a piece with of course very specific issues that will which will obviously Apply differently to different community groups and their different health and social needs, but they they do require a, a kind of access politics, not just a rights-bearing politics around a sort of legal equality framework. Um, and I, I think on the second point uh, about religion, that's uh, that's obviously true. I think that's a very good point to make if you just take again the United States early gay liberation movement had um, you know there was strong Christian organizational involvement in um, LGBT politics in the 1960s 1970s it was not it's not even primarily secular actually but certainly wasn't entirely secular and it, it, it is true that you know social service organizations all sorts of things are very diverse very heterogeneous it, yeah it is impossible to just lump everything into one sort of mass um, i'm less expert obviously on the latin american dimension to that
0: great thanks and um <clears throat> there's a question on latin america from andrew about uh i think connie partially addressed this actually uh, about is there a clear left right dividing line when we think about the anti-gender movement and Andrew's thinking particularly about uh, Amlo in Mexico uh, who seems to position himself he says as a leftist and theoretically a progressive and his refusal to engage with the prevalence of femicide in particular but also takes a more obviously conservative stance on numerous gender rights issues. Um, So so that question of of left-right uh connie how do you see things in latin america
1: no i, I completely agree and, and i think my talk was very much in tune with that perspective that if we interrogate the latin american left from a gender and sexuality perspective um some of the traditional left-wing parties don't look so progressive and i think Amlo could be actually included in in those, even though initially it had a very strong coalition of, well, I mean, still has a strong coalition of institutional feminists that backed them up. Um, But I would say that's not only because of their conservative views and links with some of these movements and, and, and churches, but it's also um, about um, kind of like a quite non-lefty, left uh, approach to uh, the role of the state, uh, right? And, and, and an important agenda of rolling back the state. So I think those, um, those key um, two issues, if we think about, I mean, in a way what John was bringing, we have to have redistribution and recognition you know, to have um, gender equality or gender and sexual equality. And so, so I think it's important to interrogate what do we mean by left from a gender and sexuality perspective and those progressive forces. Um, there is a lot of diversity, right? We have AMLO, we have um, Ecuador, we have Nicaragua and, and, and then we have other completely different um, forces like Uruguay, Argentina. And um, so, so I think keeping in mind that diversity is quite key.
0: Brilliant. Well, so far we haven't had any further uh, questions from our audience. Um, It is almost at time. Um, Yes, something has just come in. Okay, good. Uh, From Tom Robinson, uh, as per David's question, uh, the one that John answered, it's true that all religious groups are a negative force. But would you agree that even so, all the anti the movements do have a religious element? I mean, not all, sorry. <laughs> not all uh, anti gender movements have a religious element. Um, so, Connie? Connie, do you want to answer that? I don't, John might want to answer it from the point of view of the States.
1: Have a religious oh, he's got element. A few
0: more points here. Not all religious groups are a negative voice, but all anti gender movements have a religious element. Okay. <laughs>
1: Oh okay 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 now I get it. Um, I mean that might um, be the case but also thinking that um, those are very heterogeneous also religious groups and actually in some instances the religious component is not the main one and sometimes it's just an issue around framing you know and about more hegemonic discourses, as John, you know, said, that groups use strategically. Um, but what we see with the anti-gender kind of gender ideology, broader uh, framing, is that it actually allows these religious groups to carve alliances with non-religious ones. And I think that's where their political incidence um, strengthens. Um, so I think that is the link that we have to be looking for yeah
0: John, sorry and the... sorry go 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 no, on. Honey.
1: um and that. i mean they if we look at like the religious organizations that have a very broad and, and grassroots base we also see and there's some interesting studies about that a, quite a discourse around um economic um success and women's empowerment that is quite uh, problematic and it's an area of anthropological study that should be um, quite key to understand as well like the the amount of women and and what do these what do women uh racialized women low-income women um gain what's the experience uh, of participating in some of these movements uh, that seems to an outsider uh, perspective to be in a way counter to the advancements of their own demands, right? If you are advocating for less state provision, if you're, because that's very much linked to conservative religious, conservative religious arguments go hand in hand with ne- neoliberal ones. And um, if you are really talking about staying at home and not going to work, that has no relation with social practices for low-income women, for instance. That's, so I think there there is like an interesting area of, of research that um, that should be covered.
0: Yes, I, I, I we have a, a comment from Sean Creely and a question. Which John, if you can see it, you might want to to engage with it. It's um it's about uh, whether there are it, the, the competing claims of victimhood might be better resolved through uh, a form of pluralism um, so that there isn't a kind of majority-minority tension. Um, do, you, do you have a, a view on that?
2: Well, I think the, pro- the problem is that the different appeals to this kind of victim status or victimhood or or you know, saying that have, there's a sort of powerlessness and elites on the other side of taking control over debates and control over leaves of power is that they're not coming from a similar, the people leading those, those discussions on the right, sort of alt-right people and a lot of people in the U.S., media are coming from an obvious position of power and control and using it as a political weapon rather than as actual category of social analysis. And they've managed to tap in, of course, to people who genuinely do feel um, a sense of not being in control of things, often again from a from an economic marginalisation status that can then be repurposed with this this sort of culture clash narrative and this sort of gender ideology politics and of course alongside it a racial ideology um, politics can be mobilized but it's not something that can be mediated through some sort of I mean it's I can't see a resolution of it through just trying (laughs) to accommodate different sort of stances on victimhood because one is clearly a weapon operation and it isn't really interested in accommodation as far as I can see.
0: Great well we have come to the end of the questions so I don't know if either of our brilliant speakers today want to have any final remarks or shall we move to closure are there any further points closure? okay I think we've had a very extraordinarily rich and exciting discussion and it was wonderful to bring John and Connie together for it and to have these different perspectives on different countries or different regions one should say so thanks very much to them and thanks very much to uh, the audience and for brilliant questions as well and uh, we look forward very much to welcome you to more of our events which we will be advertising on our website Uh, so thanks very much everyone and I will now close the session thank you